John Patrick Shanley is from the Bronx. Some of his plays include Prodigal Son, Outside Mullinger, Danny and the Deep Blue Sea, Savage in Limbo, and Italian-American Reconciliation. For his play, Doubt, he received both the Tony Award and the Pulitzer Prize. In the arena of screenwriting, he has 10 films to his credit. His film of Doubt with Meryl Streep, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, and Viola Davis, which he also directed, was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Adapted Screenplay. In 2009, the Writers Guild of America awarded Mr. Shanley the Lifetime Achievement in Writing. John Patrick Shanley, welcome to The Creative Process. Nice to be here. So just looking over your work, 20 plays, and of course, Doubt, a parable that won a Tony, a Pulitzer, that you also adapted for the screen, starring Meryl Streep, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Amy Adams, Viola Davis, at your Academy Award, of course, for Moonstruck. And you've done everything from off-Broadway to major Hollywood films, working with Steven Spielberg, Roger Deakins, Timothy Chalamet. So John, I'm wondering, like, when are you going to stop dragging your feet and finally get some work done? <laughs> well, you know, I always like to do new things. So I remember years ago when I did Danny in the Deep Blue Sea, people wanted me to do nothing but Danny in the Deep Blue Sea. I did Moonstruck and everybody wanted me to keep doing Moonstruck. It doesn't really appeal to me. And so right now I'm working in animation and in theater and we're trying to arrange an opera commission. So a lot of different forms and venues and stuff. The world is changing so fast, you have to run to keep up. Yeah, you've done a lot of theater and of course your film work. I hadn't noticed a lot of television work and I know a lot of the money at least is going into quality dramas moving on to television. Is that something that I were- did, I did one with Tom Hanks at HBO called Factory Man based on a book. And I wrote the whole thing. I think it was like six episodes or something. But then the management changed at HBO. And so that didn't come to fruition. But it paid the bills for you. And it seems like a kind of threading the needle, the challenge, because you end the episode or you end the season and you have to write for that possibility. Will it continue? Will it not? And so does that, I mean, I don't know how that worked with you. It's very nice and satisfying with a film or a play where you get a real ending. And I know I can land it because it doesn't have to take mm -hmm. off again. Yeah, it's my instinct is to come to a definitive conclusion and so free myself from the material. But, you know, the narrative form, most of the ones that I really enjoy in television are limited arcs. They go for four episodes or six episodes. And when you just try to keep it going indefinitely, it's a whole different way of thinking than the way that I yeah, and I think that because when we're really drawn to strong characters that are well-written and, you know, beautifully performed, say like with Doubt, you know, part of that is that mystery. And one of the you know, beautiful things about Doubt, and I still don't quite know, I'm still in doubt as to the actual culpability of the characters, but that was what was nice about it. But if you ran that as a series, then at some point you'd have to resolve that, right? Not necessarily, but I don't really see you running that as a series unless you add a different question, that that's a question, but it's not the question of a given episode. Many years ago, there was a series called The Fugitive, and the whole premise was that this guy was wrongly accused of murder, and he was on the run, and he was chasing a one-armed man that he'd seen leave the scene of the crime. But on individual shows, there was no expectation that he was going to catch the one-armed man. That was simply the motor that kept the show going. Yeah, that was an interesting show. I think for that time, you know, a lot of te television has evolved so much. And there was that sense of mystery. What was his name? The actor. Jensen. 
No, David, Jensen. David Jensen. Yeah. And so he retained that mystery. And I think that, and maybe it is a little bit like theater acting. He had a lot of restraint and, and that mm-hmm. was, and his compassion. It was a little more subtle than I think that we were used to seeing in, in that period in television. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty big experimental era in television. It had Route 66. I'm still not sure what that show is about, but it had the longest titles of episodes the title sometimes went on for like three or four lines. And, you know, it was two guys in a very fancy car driving across the United States, taking odd jobs. That was the premise. And I'm not sure you could get anybody to do that now. <laughs> and so that's a pretty experimental way to go at things. Yeah, I remember that show too. I mean, I'm nostalgic for certain periods and <laughs> though it's before my to my time, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's true. I don't know what the backgrounds are. People coming, migrating over from theater, you have this kind of cross-pollination. But yeah, it's nice to see those things. Of course, we see it happening more often now. So that's interesting how you mentioned these characters having odd jobs. I know that you've had a number of jobs. Just tell us a little bit about your trajectory and how that might provide a fertile soil for your formation as a writer. Sure. Well, I was born and raised in the Bronx in a working class neighborhood. And I got my first job at 13, which was the legal age to get a part-time job back then. And worked at Orchard Beach selling orange drink from a canister strapped to my back, walking on the sand dunes up and down, yelling, soda, soda. And, you know, from there, I was a soda jerk for Howard Johnson's and a busboy. And then I started cleaning banks at night. And then I was a truck unloader down at Western Electric, down on Fulton, and freight elevator operator. I wasn't very good at that. It's hard for me to really get on the floor, match the... <laughs> Never mind. Anyway, then I worked as a relief manager for a sandwich shop chain in Manhattan and a medical supply company in the Bronx. And I went in the Marine Corps for two years. I was an anti-tank assault man specializing in, I was a flamethrower gunner and small plastic explosives, things like that, anything to blow up a tank. And then I got out of there, went to NYU. I went for a year before that and then went back and I became valedictorian all the schools at New York University after that because I'd learned the work ethic in the Marine Corps. It wasn't hard for me to get up early and write those papers. It seemed like fun after the Marine Corps. And then I was like a moving man after NYU as a bartender and a brew burger on 34th Street. And then I was a contract a painter of houses. I painted a lot of homes, interiors mostly. And then somewhere in there, I finally started to take off as a, a writer I was when I was 34. But I've been writing steadily from the time I was 11. And I've been writing dialogue. My first play, probably when I was about 22, 23. It's interesting because it's not often said, that's a lot of physical labor. That's you're getting to know mm-hmm. people and their voices, but also theater is a physical labor. If you're working with the company, that has to be made by people. There's a lot of all these negotiations, but it's not just intellectual labor. No, it's also, you know, work of whatever kind is commitment to work. In other words, it's like, I am going to work long and hard because there's things that I want to do results that I want to obtain. And if I want to obtain those results, it's going to involve a lot of work. So I better choose something that I really love because then I won't mind working that hard. But you're not going to get anywhere by not working hard in theater, in film, in television, any of it. 
And I was wondering, because you mentioned really, I mean, of course, you've always been writing, obviously, your love of language came I guess, from childhood. But it's interesting, there's some works of art that can only be done or can be done better by your young self. You talked about like you know, writing your first play when you were 22, but then moving into this more mature period when you're in your 30s. And I was wondering, it, you know, what's interesting in theater is that also, as opposed to say films, your plays are performed more than once. And as you look back, there's this chance to maybe revise or reflect on that. Do you feel like when you have these plays performed again are you involved in revisions are there some themes that you say i'm going to set this aside not i I wouldn't revise unless it's a very recent play because those are artifacts of all the people i was and i can't replicate my state of mind back then there's a certain length of time that you have to write a play before you turn into somebody else and it's no longer you're no longer in the play you're standing outside and looking at it and there's, you know, there can be merit in that. And I've taken in later years to taking more time writing a play and more time revising, but partially because the worldscape has become so dynamic that figuring out what is perishable in what you write and what will endure is an ever greater exercise. Oh, definitely. It's interesting. I was recently interviewing the founder of Island Records. So I was going over, you know, they produce like Bob Marley and Kat, Yusuf Cat Stevens and it's interesting to to listen to Cat's use of Cat Stevens performing father and son. His voice, I think, is quite unusual. It's quite pure. It's almost it's not the same, but it still has that strength. But when he wrote it, he was closer to the son, and now he's performing again, and he's closer to the father. And it's mm. just interesting to see how one can still have that within you. And I don't know if you feel the same. I don't know. Somehow this reflection's like, that's in me. But now I have all this experience, this other shell of experience on, on me. It's very difficult, actually, to marshal your ever greater experiences into a coherent artistic work. And it's the more you know, the more difficult it gets to be simple and to have a clear structure and tell your story. It becomes a bigger job, what you're going to leave out. That's interesting, because then the editing process, like maybe you're saying almost the editing process is done for you in a way by virtue of your limited experience. Like there's maybe only one option. <laughs> like mm-hmm. that's, that's the only way I know how to do it. <laughs> and then as you build up this repertoire, it's like, wow, there's so many ways this could go. Well, you can't get trapped in your head when you're a playwright or probably any kind of real artist. You have to find your center, which involves your spirit and your emotions and some intellect. Right. And so as you're, as you're saying, how this tuning fork where you're finding or you're staying true to the story, when you're working on a big collaborative medium, like theater, film, so how do you work with your different collaborators to maybe, how do you say, narrow the bandwidth and just stay true to that tone? Well, you have to describe to the idea, the best idea in the room. It doesn't matter who has it. But my job is to have the best idea in the room a lot. Otherwise, I'll be thrown out of the room. And I don't know how open playwrights are for this or playwrights. I know definitely screenwriters, which you're unusual too, in that your screenplays have been adapted by the directors, but you've also directed your own work. And I think for mm-hmm. plays as well, you direct your own work. So you have that start to finish. So that's quite interesting. But obviously, screenwriters have to kind of give up their baby and have it raised by <laughs> other parents. How open? 
open are you to, you're in the room, you're listening to the contributions or maybe the actors, their rhythms and behaviors. How open are you to saying, this is a starting point, but you know, if you want to tune this in a different way that works for you, how do those conversations work? I mean, yeah, I wouldn't say you want to do this in a different way that works for you, uh, but I'm listening, I'm watching, like if in rehearsal, like when we did the movie of Doubt, we had a couple of weeks of rehearsal, just, you know, sitting around the table in a room. And during that time, if actors have questions, if they're not sure what to do with a certain line or a certain action or something, they ask their questions and I give them the best answer that I have. It's very rare that I would be in a situation where I'm doing a project and the star is the center of creativity in terms of writing. I've never been in that situation. I imagine if I was doing a movie that was a comedy with Jim Carrey, I would write certain things that were like uh, Lazis that were comic comedia bits and then see what he wanted to do with that because this is one of his areas of genius and so you want that you don't want to say no you're going to say exactly what i say and that's it you're going to do it because he's more than that it's like robin williams he's and you have to acknowledge that and allow that to happen exactly it might not be lines but maybe behaviors or it's something usually more in the realm of comedy I've never had an actor improv a line in one of my plays ever. And I have this like one line improv in Moonstruck and it is very well received, but I didn't like that it was there. I know because you have this music and this rhythm. Yes, I can imagine people putting it on. Some people, they write, I guess it's more maybe now in television it's because there's so many beautiful performances in doubt, like every, every performance is beautiful. Even the shorter performances, I was doing an interview with someone who wrote for a number of years for Violet Davis for television. So then that's a case of maybe writing for her rhythms because it exists. It's set up that way. But when you're writing plays and you don't know who's going to inhabit the voice. So do you consider yourself, you transition from, from poetry to plays, movies, do you consider yourself a visual person? Yeah, very much so. You go back and look at Joe versus the Volcano. I think you can see what I can do visually, which is a lot. When you really are a screenwriter, you are visualizing, you're directing the movie. Now, going back to doubt, how is it to work with Roger Deakin? Roger is a man of few words, a lot of sparkle. He's got a real twinkle in his eye and a dry sense of humor. It was extremely easy to work with. He was very open. If you suggested a shot, he was off with a crew, like setting it up within seconds, or he was never going to set it up because it was no good as an idea. Most of the time, you would run with it. One time I suggested a master alongside of a set and he just said no. <laughs> and I was like, okay, it's Roger Deakins. I'm going to go with him on this. And the joy for you in writing, is it still more in the theater? I mean, there's different pleasures in film. I hate working in theater and I hate working in film. And whenever I'm doing a movie, I swear... From now on, I'm only going to do theater. And whenever I'm working in theater, I swear now on, I'm only going to work in film. And that's kind of how I'm able to withstand the unpleasantness of the reality of 
tangibly doing something that a writer encounters. You're in your room and you imagine the whole thing and there are no problems. And then when you actually do it, there's all kinds of problems. Actors have the flu, sets fall down, fires break out, floods have had all of those things happen and fights break out and you just sort of have to deal with everything. And some part of you goes like, I wish I was back in my room imagining all this and it's going so well. Yeah, and it, particularly when you have to be at the helm. I've spoken to cinematographers or editors where they've said, wow, I really admire what the directors do, but like I like to be like steadily working and not have to be negotiating all the time. It's like the iceberg, right? Yeah, you have to go with it. You have to let people in. You have to hear what they have to say, see whether it's valid or not. The great thing about modern filmmaking is virtually everyone you're dealing with is incredibly competent. So you'd be crazy not to listen to their questions, their objections or whatever. From the person who handles the animals you're working with, you say, no, don't go in that pen with the bull. Don't go in. He knows more about the bull than you do. And that certainly cameramen and set decorators, they're making a very real contribution and they know what they're doing. And in terms of your directorial style, is it varying from project to project? What is your directorial style? I remember when I was doing Wild Mountain Time in Ireland, I was doing a scene with Chris Walken and Jamie Dornan, and it was his first day's work, Jamie, and a very dense dialogue scene. And we break it down into pieces. And so we do the first piece. And after he does it, I said, very good. And he said, really? I thought it was absolute shite. And I said, yeah, we're going to do it again. He said, just tell me what you want. And I said, no, no, that's not what we're doing. You're going to turn in a performance and I'm going to make it the best performance it can be. I'm going to shape my work around you. So you've got the power. Use it wisely. The actor, they work very hard before they ever get on set. They're ready to go. They are deeply prepared. And if you skip over what they're offering to say, I want this, you are very often missing the best work that they have. So I start with, let me see what you got, what you want to do. And then if there's a problem with it, I'll say so. If there isn't a problem, I'm not going to create one, but I am going to try to get it to be as good as it could possibly be. And you speak about that was a set just outside Mullingar and Ireland has its own musical language. And But you're very rooted in New York, usually in your writing or just in your voice. So how do you feel that New York has influenced your imagination? Oh, my God. I'm New York to the soles of my feet and more specifically the Bronx. I was formed in the Bronx. I lived there till I was 19. Then I went in the Marine Corps. Something that I feel has really been lost when they stopped drafting people is I came up against everybody in the country and mostly poor people of every persuasion from Virginia to D.C. And we lived together in an open barracks, like 90 of us in double-decker bunks for a year. And that is gold. It's irreplaceable, not simply as an artist, but as a citizen of a given country that you come to realize we're all in this together. And you see all of the prejudices play out in a kind of healthily violent way. People just punch each other in the face. Now, apparently, it's much more civilized. Back then, Marines said the most awful things to each other imaginable of a racist nature and of every other kind of nature. And then fists were thrown and somehow the world didn't come to an end. Then everybody calmed down and they went back to their bunks 
and read their comic books or whatever they were going to do, went to bed and we got up the next day and we worked together. That's a big lesson in how to live with people you don't necessarily agree with. So jumping into how a lot of your plays and your screenplays are developed around your personal experiences, I had a question about how your screenplay Moonstruck, as well as your play Women in Manhattan, center around female stories. I just want to know what your inspiration is around them and who you base them off of. Well, I grew up in an Irish and Italian neighborhood in the Bronx. And in my house, the food was no good. The clothes were no good. The hair was no good. And I would go over in my friend's house, Italian family. They were like openly talking about sex. They were wearing really interesting clothes. The men were like very vain about their hair. The food was much better. And I was like, this is amazing. I've found, I've stumbled on everything that was missing from my life in my neighbor's house. And so I kind of fell in love with the Italian-American culture, which there's a lot of things that Irish-American families, they don't talk about. And the Italian-American families, they talked about. And between those two cultures, we covered an enormous amount of ground. So then later, when I was writing Moonstruck, I was also in my 30s and I was dating and I was running into women who had this question of, I'm in my 30s now and I've been holding out for the right guy. Everybody I meet is not the right guy. And I think I'm going to have to compromise and just marry a guy who does the job. And sometimes they would do that. I thought, well, what happens if you do that? And then the next day, the guy you've been waiting for shows up. And that's kind of the premise of Moonstruck. And my advice would be like, go with it. To throw over as many pieces of furniture as you need to, to get where you need to get. Women in Manhattan, similar in a different way. I was living in Manhattan and I was dating women who weren't from the Bronx, who weren't necessarily New Yorkers or Italian-Americans or Irish Americans. I was dating wasps from New England and girls from the Deep South. And there's, there's another whole thing. But the thing they had in common was they'd all come to New York and they were bonded over that idea of a glittering city that drew them that they had dreams and this is where they went to fulfill those dreams. And your play and your screenplay, Doubt, is mainly focusing on the church. And so in your interviews, you mentioned the conversations that you want to evoke in Doubt and how important that is to you. Well, I don't know about you, but me, I never know everything. People will say I've been watching Susie and she's married to that guy, but she keeps going over to that other apartment where that guy Jim lives. It's pretty obvious they're having an affair. And she comes out and her hair's all messed up. And I'm like, yeah, but I don't know and neither do you. And most of the time, we don't know. We're guessing. Or we're guessing about people's motivations for doing things. Well, he did that because he was jealous. Or he did that because he was greedy. Or he did that because he's a really good guy. And I'm like, yeah, you're guessing but you don't really know. And so there's always that element of doubt. It's like, I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you everything I know, but I don't know everything. And that little area creates a vibration that can run very deep because you can have that about your entire spiritual experience of life where you go on, I think this, I feel this, or I believe this, but I, I don't ultimately really know. And if you are very invested the way Sister Aloysius is, the older nun, in her faith and in her worldview and how she operates, for her to admit that she has death is an earthquake under the whole culture. And it's something that I think 
the whole culture has experienced. Indeed. And that not knowing, it's almost, it's really the, almost the engine for drama, for seduction as well. What you don't know or what you don't see, the veils that allow our imagination to work. And that's what works. If you answered the question, it would have spoiled that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> now we go, we leave the theater or the, the play and it stays with us and we don't know. Also, having lived in Ireland for many years, this is also a very Roman Catholic thing where everyone's kind of like surmising behind lace curtains. They go to the Lace Curtain <laughs> Society and living your life for you. And they're also on an island. And people on an island have a very definite mindset about conformity. It's like, we got to get along. We're on an island. And I have all of these thoughts and feelings that are conflicting and judgmental and maybe worse, but I have to mask them behind some art because we're on an island and there's nowhere to go but the ocean. Yes. And when I was living in Ireland, I had to get permission to get married because my husband had been divorced in England. And it was a whole process. This whole, oh that was in the 90s. That was in the 90s. Okay. We were mm -hmm. the first to be remarried from divorce. That's uh, a movie. That's a movie. You could write that movie. Yes. We got a big lawyer to, to mm -hmm. cite papers and letters. So a lot of your plays and screenplays are set in place in the Bronx. And you mentioned the Bronx inspires you to create art in your life. That's a good question. And I think I really know the answer to it. It's you grow up wherever you grow up. And there are things there. And there are other things that are not there. And the things that are not there, you can imagine. And I did a lot of imagining in the Bronx because there was a lot of things that I gravitated towards that just weren't there. The Fantastic, Thief of Baghdad, Magic, Beautiful Clothes, Beautiful Places, the exoticism of that. And then at another later point, I thought, I am missing my whole life from my work. I am writing about all these things that are not my life, because I think everything that I actually saw and heard and felt is so ordinary that it's not worth repeating. And I think most of us feel that way and we're dead wrong that in fact those things are gold those are the things that we actually have to write about and you can write about anything when you start with those things and embrace them embrace your own life i was thrown out of kindergarten for making believe i was watching the mickey mouse show all day every day i could not they couldn't read they talk i didn't hear them they finally just said he's too young for school and sent me home and it was the beginning of the creative impulse is that I was powerful daydreamer. John Patrick Shanley's insight in storytelling and embracing your own life experiences to inform your imagination is a process that I feel is very important as an artist. As an artist and actress myself, I gravitate towards the imagination when creating art. But through the years of learning how to create theater, I've found that it is so important to ground your imagination in what seems like the ordinary as well. This is because, like John P. Shanley was saying, there is magic in the ordinary. When first creating art, it is easy to lean towards what feels most entertaining and exciting in the imaginary world rather than going through with a more realistic approach. As humans, our daydreaming is incredibly powerful, and it is a tool that has been gifted to artists alike. The stories we hear, see, and tell are closely rooted to where we're from and have lived. 
I grew up in the suburbs of Massachusetts in a small town in New England. I moved to New York City to find more inspiration for my art. I remember moving here and being in awe of everything in New York City. The people, the architecture, how big it is, everything. There was so much room for my imagination to grow. I would wait at a park bench and watch people go by for 10 minutes and find an idea for a theater piece or a song. I like to watch people interact and turn these images of the city into an imaginative story. And this is all coming from a place of imagination and daydreaming in which John is talking about. Yet hearing him talk about growing up in the Bronx and later finding much inspiration from the ordinary sparked curiosity in me and helped me recall the experiences I had growing up in Massachusetts and the unique experiences I carry because of that. He didn't know that his experiences growing up were unique and that people would be interested in hearing about the nuns, as he explains. Yet writing about the nuns is what created one of the most famous plays and movies, Doubt. Writing about what we find as ordinary could be magical to someone who hasn't had the same experience as us. It is the imagination that can embellish and ignite interest. But the story needs to start with the truth and taking inspiration from what you already may know. It's really important to be grateful for what we have and what we're given, but for what we don't have as artists, this sense of longing, then you have to create those worlds in your imagination. I was watching a documentary. It wasn't made in the 60s, but it was starring footage from Italy in the 60s and the poverty of kids playing in the alleys with a chair mm. and pretending it was a donkey. But the worlds, you can imagine what they're imagining. You know, it's not a chair, it's a means of transport to other worlds. If they believe it, I believe it, you know? I mean, I think that that is a problem that we're enduring, experiencing now in film and in theater, that because of the politicization of media, that you see, like, well, if you're going to cast the part of a guy with one leg, you have to hire a guy with one leg. And that's exactly what theater isn't. Theater is you take a pot from your kitchen and put it on your head and say, I'm the king of England. And if you believe it, I'll believe it. And that frees all the one-legged people to be Fred Astaire, to do whatever they want. If they believe it, I'll believe it. So that kind of literalism is, to, I think, inhibiting to everyone. Going back to Doubt and talking about female characters, you have a lot of very strong women playing these characters like Meryl Streep and Viola Davis. What were your experiences working with them as actresses? They're very committed. Like with Viola, Viola was just, I mean, she'd done a decent amount of big work before that, but she was not recognized yet. And she was careful. She certainly wasn't throwing her weight around. She was, I'm the new kid on the block. And I'm just here to work and be serious and do my job, keep my head down and get out. And pretty much that's what I was doing too, you know, because I got Meryl, I got Phil Hoffman, who I'm friends with, but Phil's not an easy guy to be friends with, or was not easy to be friends with. He's a very prickly person, prone to getting pissed off about things that you might not expect. And then Amy was somebody who tried to get along with everybody. And Phil would say, like, you just want everybody to like you. So you're in the middle of that group and you just, you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're trying to prove something. You have to let them, they're very, very smart people and they're going to figure out whatever it is that you're doing. They're going to figure out whether you're in any way trying to handle that and that's not going to go well. And so I didn't do that. <laughs> they're very smart. Meryl is very, very smart and very focused and in a sense, very private her work. 
she isn't going to talk a great deal about her secrets, the secrets of her character. She's going to carry them with her. And speaking of Philip Seymour Hoffman, you recently gave a speech, you know, your memories in honor of him. I don't know if you want to share some of that. I knew Phil for several years. We went on vacation together. He produced a play of mine. Before we did Doubt, we worked in the same theater company together. And he was very committed to excellence. So he could become impatient with anybody who was not committed to excellence. And that could make him a volatile person to deal with. I remember... It was a labyrinth theater company, and I was walking up to the building, and Phil came bursting out the door, and he was in rehearsal, like tech week, with a play by Stephen Anthony Kyrgios. And he was saying, he looked at me and he said, I'm never going to work with him again. This is a nightmare. We're in tech week. I still don't have a second act. Uh, and it's like, he went on for like five minutes. And then, of course, he went back in, and they did the show, and it was terrific. Because that was Stephen Gerges's process is he was the biggest procrastinator I've ever seen, but he would come through. And I've never seen that. I've never seen somebody put off doing it for so long and then really come up with it. Really the day before it would be a complete disaster. And the strain I put on everybody, all the actors and the director and everything else. And of course, since I wasn't in it, I found it comical. <laughs> because <laughs> it wasn't my ass that was on the line. But Phil cared. He cared a great deal. And he worked really hard. That's interesting. Some people can really harness that momentum of, and also like great improvisers as well. Like you just got one shot and this is it. <laughs> and you're mm -hmm. just going, you die with it or you or land it right. But it, yeah, you need to have a stomach for it. <laughs> you definitely mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting because you were saying there about your time in the Marines and also, you know, at that time, yes, racist people would say anything not politically correct. Wokeism hadn't, <laughs> you know, not had a but, you know, I imagine also feel for drama. But now, I mean, there's good and there's bad. We have wokeism. We have less you know, personal contact, which I think was like, what a great gift for you that you had all these in-person, real-life experiences with all sorts of characters. Now your life is curated. You might not only meet your friends here on a screen because I'm trying not to fly every time I have a conversation, but, you know, people don't experience life. Young people don't experience life. They kind of see it and then maybe plan it and it happens. We've been through a global pandemic of a tremendous severity. A million people in the United States alone died from COVID. And people had to go to their homes. And this has happened before. It happened to Shakespeare. He had to go home for a couple of years during the plague. And that's when he wrote King Lear. And, you know, one of the things that's been commented upon about the Black Plague is that almost no one wrote about it, even though it was obviously this huge experience. And now I know why. I think we're all like beyond anxious to get past it, forget it, and get back to our fully socialized life. And of course, there's no particularly clear avenue back. You could just sort of want to have a positive attitude and hope you don't get sick. And obviously, there's now vaccines and things aren't as desperate as they were that first year. I actually, you know, I get the New York Times delivered to my door the greatest single luxury I think I have. And during that time, I would put it in the oven and bake it <laughs> for like, till it got just a little crispy every morning. I kind of miss it because it felt like you were reading an ancient document, that little parchmenty feeling. 
But we've been through that. And unfortunately, something that happens in world history is we experience upheavals in national or international level that for a time color the zeitgeist. And we've just been emerging from one of those. And we don't know what we're emerging into. And then there's all these mm-hmm. technologies that distance us, but give us so much information, more information than you actually need, but impoverish the imagination. And how do you reckon with that within your writing? or how- mm-hmm. Well, I don't have much of a problem with using the internet to my purposes, because my philosophy has always been do the research, do the minimum amount of research, because too much research actually makes it hard for you to write. But you need this, obviously, you need to be knowledgeable. And I remember back when I did Alive, which was about the Andes disaster, and that this group of rugby players had to survive above the snow line in the Andes Mountains for 70 days without a blade of grass and survive through cannibalism. And they tried to make a movie about it for the better part of 20 years. They built sets, everything. They came to me, Disney, and they said, you know, want to make this, Kathy Kennedy and Frank Marshall, who were friends of mine, And they said, but, you know, we're going to do it now. I said, well, I'll do it if I don't have to read any of the screenplays. Because there was something like 19 screenplays. And so I wrote it and I spent time with the survivors, who were an amazing and fabulous group of people. And they gave them the script after I wrote it. And one of them called me up and said, how did you know what it's like to be in the deep snow? And I said, I'm from the Bronx. There's all different forms of privation, and you can translate from one to the other. There's different kinds of desert that people wander through. One kind is in the deep snow on top of the Andes Mountain. Another is on the streets of the Bronx. Look, I was like, when I was, I guess about nine, I threw a snowball at two older guys, and they chased me, and they chased me into a tenement and up the five flights of stairs onto the roof, and they caught me on the roof, and they hung me off the roof by my feet and threatened to let me go. And I remember that (laughs) quite vividly. And I remember thinking, whatever these guys want, I'm on their side. I'm not going to kick. I'm not going to fight. That would not be a good idea. I'm just going to relax hanging upside down with my hair hanging out until they get bored with doing this and they pull me up again. And they did. And those kinds of things stay with you. And they you learn things about yourself by having stuff happen to you. And then you find out what your response will be. I knew from that what my response would be if somebody pulled a gun on me. Uh, I ended up having I quite a few people pull a knife on me. but And actually, I was very proactive with that. I took the knives away from them. and But you don't know that you're going to do that or how you're going to do that until it happens. Stuff has to happen to you. And if you just stay home with social media, nothing's going to happen to you. You're going to be a pretty boring person because you're just not going to find out about yourself through interacting with others in the real world. Exactly. I can imagine being traumatized by the boredom of everything. (laughs) Everything is predicted and planned. So as you think about how New York has transformed in these last decades, I mean, you've seen Mm -hmm. a lot of change. Yeah. 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 I lived in the apartment that I lived in years ago on Ninth Street. I remember looking out the when the World Trade Center was bombed the first time and half of the lights were out in the building and half were on. And the fact that they had that happen and then put the command station case of terrorist attack in that building to this day, I'm like, 
okay, that's the craziest thing I ever heard of. That was Rudy Giuliani. But then I was in Brooklyn Heights when the towers came down and the air was full of little pieces of paper, like snow. And I remember walking to the Brooklyn Promenade as I realized what was happening. And I heard these two guys in front of me talking. And I went closer to hear what they were saying. And the one was saying to the other, when you have a pump in the basement like that, you have to have it double wired in order. And I was like, they're not dealing with the fact that the World Trade Center just collapsed. They're talking about a plumbing problem in somebody's basement. And that's like real human behavior. And you got to be out on the street at the time to have those experiences. The guy who first told me it was that a plane that hit the World Trade Center, I was in a coffee shop and the radio was on. And I said, did that guy just say a plane hit the World Trade Center? And the guy said, yeah. And he went back to making coffee. And I said, how big a plane? And at that moment, a guy came running across the street with a big smile on his face. And he'd been working up on a church steeple across the street. And he had seen the plane hit the building. And he's the one who told me how big the plane was. And then the street filled up with a world of emergency vehicles. And you have to be out on the street to have that experience. Not that it was a pleasant one, but it was powerful and important. It's so interesting because you said you saw him running, smiling, and there is a kind of exhilaration. You know, it's not like happiness. I remember when Notre Dame went on fire and someone, it was a visitor, he was American, and he says, I got to be here when it happened. You know, we're looking at burn, it's still burning. And there's that, I guess that is the thing about being witness to history, because there are these moments that we've all lived through. I mean, it's also been observed through COVID or through 9-11, where we all collectively have this big thing that we experience together. It doesn't happen that many times in our life. Right. But more lately. I mean, definitely we are living in a time where everyone is considering the possibility of the apocalypse. And that is new. I mean, I think that there was probably a point during, let's say, the first year or two of the Second World War, where people had that thought. But there's more science to back it up now than then. And what do you do when your idea of the future changes, becomes limited, and the door shuts that will never open again? And I think that a lot of people are wrestling with that question. How do I function, live, knowing what I do? I don't want to know what I know about climate, about the madness of governments, the fact that it's very clear that the human race has not evolved into a more civilized and civil place and that the dangers are everywhere and growing. And so then you're like, okay, well, how do you handle that? I think a good way, one way is to read Milan Kundera, because I think he confronted many of those problems before a lot of us had to. That's true. And added this, you know, beautiful reflections in the art and brought that together with philosophy that allowed us to look at the absurdity of life, but also appreciate its beauty, I think. Yes. Yeah. And I think, you know, as we're faced with this fracturing of trust and this kind of isolation that's happened through pandemic or through our technologies, the collective experience of theater becomes more and more important. What are your reflections on that? And just what was so enriching about the experience of theater? Well, I'm a theater guy. That is probably my first and last love. And in the United States, it's in really tough shape because all of those theaters lost a lot of money during COVID. Most of them are 
in big financial trouble. Many of them have closed. The Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement have coalesced into a urgent need to replace the leadership of almost every theater organization, and which means that very inexperienced people are running a vast majority of the arts organizations in the United States right now at a time when they need the most experienced people. The arguments on either side are compelling, but I do feel like the fight is going on over something that's already on in very bad shape. And it's opposed to going after where the real money is and where the real power is. They're going after the weakest, most vulnerable and most inclusive branch of the arts. The great news about theater is it'll always survive because you don't need money to do theater. You can just walk outside and do theater. You can do theater in your apartment, and I have. I've done many plays in my apartment and will continue to do so. But when you talk about enriching the population, the sort of thread of the habit of people going to the theater has been broken to some degree because nobody could go to the theater for better part of three years. And now there are people who are coming back, but there are many people who aren't. And the whole thing is going to have to be reconfigured. So I would say in the midst of times like that, it's always an opportunity because that's what people in the arts do. They constantly have to outwit the time they live in, both in terms of their work. In other words, they have to say what nobody's saying. They have to see what nobody's seeing, and they also have to survive in a hostile environment a lot of the time because the benefits of theater are indirect, very big. You know, New York, the financial effect of theater on New York is enormous because of worldwide tourism coming to see a Broadway show when they come. But the office towers in New York are, I don't know, they're like, 30% 30% empty. It's the tax base is shrinking for that reason. There's an awful lot that has to be dealt with in order to survive right now. Indeed. But so, you know, so much with it, when people like say what brings them joy in their life, or if you look back over like, I don't know, archaeology and history, and you see about how, how do we define a culture? And it's just, it's in the arts, really, you know, it's the, the mm-hmm. gray areas, the ambiguous spaces where I feel we define who we are. So Absolutely. But it's sort of like Shangri-La in that book, Lost Horizon, that described this place that every once in a while, the world is affected by an enormous calamity. And when those times happen, they invented a place in Tibet called Shangri-La, where they kept all world culture safe so that when the calamity was over, they could come out again. And I think that actually is always true, that There are enough people who deeply care about world culture that they go to enormous lengths to preserve it during times when it is undervalued by the world at large. Well, thank you, John Patrick Shanley, for sharing your insights into culture and the imagination, your stories about love, faith, doubt, and the importance of the arts. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Yan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Skylar D'Andrea with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this episode was Skylar D'Andrea. Digital Media Coordinator was Sam Myers. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. 
We hope you enjoy listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.